we're so pleased to have Matthew Bristow, uh, VFX producer that's worked on such movies as Gravity, Sherlock Holmes, Jurassic World, amongst so many other films. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks, Neff. It's, it's really great to be talking to you over the next couple of hours as well. I'm really going to enjoy digging into my memory archives and seeing what I can remember from going back quite a few years, I think. I guess give us give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself. Um, I've, yeah, I've been in the industry um, on the post side for the last sort of 25 years. And I've been really fortunate in that time to work on some great films, work at some really great companies as well, but also to collaborate with so many different people from sort of directors, editors, producers to artists. I'm very much at the, the post side as well. And so much of what my task was is managing teams to deliver other people's movies and other people's artistic vision as well. Because, you know, whether it's uh, through the DI process, creating the look through the visual effects process, adding all those great elements into it. But it's getting the film over the line and into into theatres and on TV screens as well. And, and often it's just shepherding lots and lots of different people throughout that process. Nice. And could you tell us about your first roles in the film industry? Uh, I'm going to take you way back there because I there is a there is a killer. Cinema's always been a part of my life from when I was very very young, and I'm going back, you know, to the to the 70s. And my, my grandfather would take myself and my brother and just drop us in the local cinema for the day, and then pick us up at the end of the day, having watched the same film three or four times throughout that because you could go back then. But I I really I, I my my brother back in the sort of early 90s was manager of the empire leicester square which is a big cinema in the center of london and i i left art school i wasn't working and he said do you want to do you want to come down to london and start selling popcorn in the cinema and i was like yeah okay that sounds great i'll do that i'm young it sounds like fun and he was and then did that for a while and then the projectionist and it was all 35 mil back then as well one of the projectionists said to me do you want to be do you want to be a projectionist? Come, come to our side. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds a lot more fun, you know, because you get to watch the films, you get to handle it. But also when dealing with 35 mil within, you know, these quite old-fashioned cinemas as well, you feel the history a little bit as well. It's still very, it was still a very traditional filmmaking process. It was still all laboratory-based. So this was all pre-digital. Um, and it just had that sort of, that little bit of magic about you as well you know the the, the, length, the, the, the light through the porthole sort of smoky cinema you know because that you know the cinema paradiso feel it, it did feel a little bit like that and now that, that I, you know i did and that was exciting because in in the sort of the west end of london you're working you know it's commercial cinema but we would do a lot of previews directors screenings private screenings as well so you were as well as showing the commercial films you were we were running films you know, advanced screenings of some really great films. So you got to see things before everybody else. But in doing that, as a projectionist, rehearsing the film, you'd meet the distribution manager or the producer might come down to have a look. And I was always quite sort of engaging with, you know, people. I wanted to learn from, you know, kind of lots of different people. And so, see, I remember seeing Pulp Fiction, you know, maybe a month before its release as well. And it's like, what a, an original, unique and amazing film. And we were seeing things like that all the time. And it was it was quite inspirational. And then I realised that, you know, cinema's great, being a projectionist's great, but, you know, working at some kind of preview cinema, it seemed like that was where you should be working if you're a projectionist because you experience more. And I got a job at um, Soho House, which is a global 
private members club now, but at the time there was one club in London and they had this tiny little cinema in there and we used to run preview screenings, we had a little film club, but because it was a sort of private club for the um, creative community, directors, producers, actors, they would also use the club as well and use the cinema. So the year I spent there was amazing in terms of the connections I made and the people I met, whether it's movie stars or famous directors. I remember actually screening for um, Guy Ritchie and Matthew Vaughan. I think it must have been one of the first prints of um, Lock, Sock and Two Smoking Barrels, which was a real game changer of the film. You know, it was so unique and original. And, you know, it was really, it was quite a buzz to, you know, be just the guy, I was the guy in the back room, but, you know, to still be a part of, you know, a small part of that process was exciting. But then I, you know, I heard that a company called the Moving Picture Company, which is MPC, which is now this huge global VFX beast producing, you know, Lion King, Lion King 2, some, I, the list goes on, incredible. They were building a new facility in, uh, in Soho, which is the heart of the film community, you know, filmmaking and post-production community in London. And they were putting in a state-of-the-art screening room in their basement. And I thought, that's that's the gig I want. I want it. So I, I, through the projectionist community, I found out who the guy who was going to be in charge of hiring there. And I became his best mate. I went to the pubs he went to. I stalked him until, until essentially gave me the job, which thankfully he did. And it really took off then because Digital, we were just starting to, just starting the move from analog to digital then within the visual effects and the advertising and the post-production process. So through my running this screening room in this, you know, one of the world's leading uh, post-production companies, everyone was using my cinema from, you know, again, it's directors, producers, movie stars, hiring it out for parties all sorts of things as well and that was my world and I got to know everybody and I got to establish and people knew me as well and I looked after their films and their projects and made sure they all ran well and you know people got to know me so I started to establish you know a client base for myself and and then my Michael Elson who was the MD at the time and digital effects were just starting to take off this is just pre-Harry Potter um asked if I wanted to be be a producer going to the production side and I thought you know like you know any opportunity that came along I thought yeah that you know this seems to be the right place and that could be really exciting I'd like to do that and I think at this stage I'd already met Danny Boyle through uh, a fantastic I would say producer but he's a man of many talents called Peter Back who introduced us on I think it must have been on a screening or on another project as well and this was when Movies were still being shot on film in order to, and some were starting to be shot digitally, but the distribution process was still 35 million cinemas. So if you shot it on videotape or and this is pre-digital format, you still had to convert that back to 35 mil print to show in cinemas. And um, Danny was, it was just 28 days later, which was shot on mini DV, which is, I don't even know if that's a format anybody would use anymore now. It was, you know, it wasn't even high def, it was standard def. And we were probably one of the only, one of maybe two companies in the UK that could convert digital formats into 35 mil of a high quality as well. But we also had an amazing colorist there as well called Jean Clement, who was one of the sort of the world's leading commercial colorists as well. And him and 
you know, him and Danny were introduced as well, and they got on really well. And that really was our very first DI, but it was also one of the very first DIs as well. So it was, we they shot it on mini DV, we color graded it uh, digitally onto, actually back onto tape, which you wouldn't do now as well. And then we put it through the process of conversion to 35 mil to get it into the cinemas as well. And it's a great film and a, a really great, technical achievement and on the back of that we set up our the di facility within mpc as well and then that took us into and then my career was fortunate enough by being within a really um you know really exciting company really you know kind of challenging and on it was just on the you know it was great for a lot of people and a lot of companies at that time as well because we were on the dawn of a new age of digital technology as well and for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial companies you could really you know, get into that and sort of build a business around that. And that, and I was lucky enough to be, be a part of that. So it helped me in my career. And yeah, I got to work on some really amazing films. So that, yeah, that's the start from popcorn seller to projectionist to DI producer in a nutshell, I think. That's pretty amazing. And, and I really like how, from what you're describing, there was really a, a, a sort of scene of kind of cinema culture and filmmakers like you were meeting Guy Ritchie and his in the early parts of his career and I and I love Lock Sock and Two Smoking Barrels by the way I, I do think that that was such a game changing film and also Danny Boyle who is coming off the heels of Train Spotting and then going on to do other great films so that's that's so cool yeah is it it was a definite there was there was a real it was a really it still is now so but then you know with these sort of you know younger directors really challenging and just visually you know, not being held back by the constraints of how you maybe traditionally would would make a film. So yeah, Danny, you know, shooting on mini DV. And that, a lot of that, you know, was down to his DOP, Anthony Dodd-Mantle, who we, we collaborated with many times. Anthony was, you know, really was an artist and, you know, he was wanting to, you know, capture capture scenes and capture art using multiple different formats as well, which was really challenging for us in on the technical side, on the post side, because, you know, it wasn't traditional, shoot it on film, release it on film, colour grade it in the laboratory. We're having to pull together all these different analogue formats, which aren't, they're not necessarily compatible. So we had to create the compatibility with getting those released into cinemas onto. So it was really exciting. And often when you're at those edges, the cutting edge of technologies as well, you're working out how things work while you're making them work as well. So there was no roadmap before, there was no tried and tested, well, this is the way that, that it's done and we're just gonna process in the same way. A lot of the time it was, this has never been done before, we're gonna work out to do it and make the rules up as we go along. And that's changed a lot over the years as well, but that's really quite exciting to be at that cutting edge. That's amazing. And you've worked on so many incredible films and I'd, I'd like to discuss some of uh, some of the conversion processes of some of the titles that you've worked on when you were at Prime Focus, such as Harry Potter and Deathly Hollows Part One and Two. De De it was the, so the the stereo conversion um, boom that happened around 2010, and again, you know, having sort of been through. Uh, multiple DIs at MPC, which were which were really exciting as well, and a, a new opportunity kept came along to um, the way that we, at the time um, my former M, the MD at MPC had left on and he'd moved into actual film production, and he was with others producing a film called Dread 3D, Ju the Judge Dread story. I think it was a remake back in 
2012, right? 2012, that was right, yeah. So we, we set up the studio, a visual effects company in London, to service that film as well. And in joining with Prime Focus, they'd also just developed this technology for converting uh, films into 3D, into stereo. It was a very, very infant technology as well. And, you know, the initial films, you know, were, were often criticised, but, you know, it was it was brand new, really bleeding edge technology as well. So we had to go through the process of, of evolution. So we were there right at the beginning as well. And we embraced and my, my role as the, the, the stereo conversion producer was to build a team work with the guys who created the technology and bring all that together to, to take on these, these large projects. And by the time we'd moved into the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part one, our process for stereo conversion, which was still a very labor intensive artist on a workstation working on the shots. It wasn't an automated, there was no, you know, stick in a computer and pop out your 3D end. It was still, you still needed many, many hundreds of people to post convert a movie. But we, the technology had become much more sophisticated, stable, and we understood it more by the time we got into uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1. But the unique challenge about that film was this is, at the time, the biggest film franchise on the planet. It was loved by, by people who grew up with the stories, with the films as well. And it's, a, it's a quite an emotional for, for all the fans of it as well. So you have to... We had to be very precious with how we looked after that. And the, um, it was also uh, the director, David Yates, first foray into 3D as well. And naturally, um, and by the time the film, the Harry Potter uh, films had come to that point in their, their story arc as well, these were the, the, obviously the final two films, but this is, this is the, the denouement, it's built up to this as well. And I think stereo conversion, to, in some people's eyes back then was was you know just a post process put on at the end or it was just a gimmick to make money as well but for us within the industry we we wanted it to be part of the only a small part but part of the the creative process as well and try and tell it tell a story through depth and depth conversion and and i guess for listeners that are not so familiar with the process how would you explain stereography and when it's actually used well, stereography is the in the world of 3D now that we have depth. So on a, on a, any normal mono, you know, 2D film, everything sits at the at the plane as well, and you would use color, music, um, many things to tell tell the creative story outside of the actual story itself and the the performance. And with stereo, we can now add layers of depth to that as well. So you know, it's very similar. Things further away things closer now for action scenes that can be quite dramatic um for emotional scenes you can draw people in by controlling the stereo and controlling the depth within a shot as well you can subtly but in the same subtle way that color does as well without being so obvious to to help um augment the story that the director has created as well so the stereographer is telling the depth story in the same way that the cinematographer is telling the visual story or the composer is telling the story through the score as well the stereographer tells it so by with the the tools that you have and with the artists that you have you control and manage the depth at different moments throughout the project so when we've got a big action scene and maybe you've got a dragon 
flying out, you, 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 you extend that depth. So you want the audience to feel the impact of something flying out of the screen. But then when you're in a, an emotional scene, you can control that depth and make it much shallower as well. So you're not sort of taking away from the, the narrative that's going on in there as well. And that's how we would use stereography in film. And coming back to the Deathly Hallows part one, which was, which was post-converted for, I think it was for a Blu-ray release or a video release. We were, myself and Richard Baker, who was the fantastic stereographer um, who, who sort of really sort of I worked with and worked on many films as well, but also that, that was a key one for Richard. We were very mindful of not wanting to, for the stereo to appear gimmicky, but so was the director as well. So it, to sort of help that, process we you know David Yates was obviously a very very busy man as well we would always have limited time with him as well so in terms of viewing and signing off the, the movie and the shots as well we wanted to create an environment that was both really comfortable it was as close to how perhaps people would be viewing it at home on their TVs and because 3D TVs were quite popular back then as well so within our studio in London in the basement, I can't remember, it was almost a bit an old storeroom or the library or something. We converted it into a really plush sort of living room, a lounge. You know, we put curtains on the walls, put a TV in there and created a really warm and welcoming and cosy environment. And it was fantastic when I think back that um, the, the three Davids, David Yates, the director, David Hayman and David Barron, the producers, would come down sort of once a week and we'd watch bits of the film and they're all they all three Davids were fantastic to work with as well and David Yates was so um, encouraging and you know kind of warm and friendly and it was it was a really nice environment to to watch this film as well and as we went through the process you could feel that he was warming to the 3D as well and understood that we weren't trying to make his amazing film gimmicky in any way it was we wanted to you know subtly perhaps enhance Things that are already there as well, but it, it dawned on me sometime later because even though I'd, I'd sort of obviously Harry Potter's were a significant part of our cultural um, landscape, but also the film visual effects, I'd never seen a Harry Potter movie before, and it was only sometime after, and I, I, I've told it to other people that you know, the, you know, the yeah, the first Harry Potter film I saw was Deathly Hallows Part Two, and I was. I was actually watching it with the director and the producer sat with them as well, which is quite, there's moments like that in your career where you think it's quite cool. That is pretty cool. You're going to enjoy those as well. So that, that was quite a special moment. And then I think when we went into the second part, uh, Deathly Harrow's, Harrow's part two, you know, biggest film on the planet, you know, the, the final release there, the culmination of so many years of work for everybody. It was, there was a number of stereo conversion vendors working on that, which I think we were one of the lead vendors at the time as well but the stereo opened up and it was much more um had much more impact there was way more depth in it i think david was much more comfortable with how we would use it on the film and chris parks was the overall and chris parks is an amazing stereographer worked on many many films he was the overall stereographer actually he was the stereographer on the gravity working with richard who was a studio-based stereographer as well on that movie and it was yeah he was you know, that was it was a really nice culmination of two really great films we really got to open that up and but it was also films like that you know in in my career are great not because you know you get to be a small part of these really really big films but it's the opportunities you can provide for others and through stereo conversion because it was it was a brand new process that we had to develop the process but also train all the artists to do that and 
because it, it wasn't perhaps as sophisticated as some forms of visual effects, we were able to take really young artists who were perhaps straight out of college, it's their first job in the industry, train them in stereo conversion, and then they get to work on these amazing films. And that was the most satisfying thing that we've got hundreds of artists, often it's their first job in the career, and they're working on some of the biggest films on the planet. It's a real buzz for them as well, and you enjoy seeing them their careers develop. And then over the years since then, I've seen so many artists that I remember interviewing them. It's their, their first job out of college and we, we gave them the opportunity and they worked really hard. And now I see them and they've really, their careers have taken off as well. And that's, I think, sort of looking, as you look back on your career, that's one of the most satisfying things, being able to, as other people gave me at the time and gave me the opportunity to work on these things and develop my career. I feel quite proud that I've given back and given other people that opportunity as well to do the same things. And that's one of the most, one of the best things about the industry that we work in, just the, there is opportunity there for people to really forge out, you know, long lasting and satisfying careers and work on some cool films as well. That's, that's so cool. And it's really such a testament to the collaborative nature of filmmaking because, you it know, you has to be collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, I, I've always imagined how many teams of people and obviously seeing them on the credits, but it, it's pretty amazing hearing um, the firsthand stories about this? Oh, it, it takes armies of people as well. And often working, you know, you can end up working long days and long hours. You, you People love what we do. And we, the, those of us in it, we do it, we do it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a job and it's a career. We do it because we love it as well. And what's really exciting is that you can, you can really do, you know, you can create things that make an impact and have a visual impact and create things that have not been done before and you know it's entertaining give people you know kind of real pleasure and excitement and, and I, I you know in mentoring you know kind of younger people in the industry as well it's we when we're working on a project you know it's ours we own it we know all about it we know all the fine detail but ultimately it gets born and into the into the outside world and other people take ownership of it as well and when you've some of those films that really break through and become, you know, huge, you know, for lots of people, globe. I mean, a film like Slumdog Millionaire was, you know, what was a relatively low budget UK independent film was this huge global smash and everybody's talking about it. So you do take pride in that, you know, however small a part you were, you were a part of that process. And it's filmmakers that make those films that make you feel part of that process and collaborate and are really collaborative just adds to the adds to the enjoyment of that as well absolutely and you you uh also had the opportunity to work on uh, wrath of the titans right or clash yeah. of the titans well i well, clash of the titans was where um the, the that was the first stereo 3d converted movie and there was a lot of it in there that worked and a lot of it didn't but they had to produce that in a very very short amount of time on a technology that was brand new as well but by the time we got to wrath of the Titans. We, we'd really mastered the technology as well. So we were able to you know, make quite a, quite a great film with that. But there's other, there's other stereo films that, that really perhaps were, were more standout both creatively, but also had a sort of bigger significant impact like Gravity and um, like Edge of Tomorrow as well. These, these are two of the probably bigger, but you know, in the stereo world, two of the most significant, I think. For sure, and 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 also you, you had a chance to work on the Phantom Menace uh, re-release in 3D back in 2012. Yeah, as well. that was yeah, that was that's going way back days. Yeah, so yeah, there was Phantom Menace the re-release. I think there was 
Yeah, again, this was this was early days in the stereo process, and I think back then there was a there was a look to you know post convert. I think we there was a feeling that as the, as the, as we rode the wave of three D that everything was going to be in 3D. You know, every film was going to be covered. We're going to watch them using 3D, all of that. And it was really exciting for a few years as we as we kind of rode that wave. But I think as things have calmed down, it's there's there's a place for it. People are using it really well. But I think, you know, you know we're not watching it. We're not putting glasses on at home and watching everything in 3D, which I think is is probably the right way. But at the time, it was a, yeah, it was a real blast. Nice. And, and talking about gravity... I got to say about that film, that's a film that I think is really a testament of how the VFX truly enhanced the storytelling because I don't think it couldn't have been made 50, 60 years ago. I mean, somebody could talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a totally amazing film, but it was a different film and the exact uh, visuals of gravity could have only been told with the use of VFX. You... Without, I mean, it, there's a, there was a, you know, the, the I know the, the sort of VFX sort of producer would sort of joke at the time that people would ask them, you know, how did you, how did you film that in space, you know, and that I think people generally because it it was breathtaking in terms of its photo real rendition of the the outer spacecraft, you know, the work there, but it's also in the hands of a true visual master in Alfonso Cuarón as well. Those. I can't, I, I forget, I had that opening shot, that slow, you know, just a single take of that shot as well, is visually, it's, um, it's really, truly amazing. But in that, from a, from a technical point of view, from a visual effects point of view, that's a massive challenge. You know, you've got to break that down into multiple shots and then it's all got to be sort of stitched back together again and blended, but have the same fluidity. That's a real challenge for any even now to you wouldn't even though technology has advanced and moved on that would still that film would still be a massive challenge now but in the hands of tim weber the vfx um supervisor and obviously in alfonso Cuarón, it, it, it is a landmark film but visually it's quite stunning as well but for me it's still an absolute roller coaster of emotions i remember the first time we uh, the part of the stereo process because the way that we came on board with that is is that the, obviously all of the exteriors are all everything there is full CG. Um, it was rendered with two cameras in stereo as well and overseen by uh, Chris Parks, the stereographer. But for the interiors of the spaceship, the original plan was to shoot those with stereo cameras, where you've got a rig with two cameras side by side. And the way that, the beautiful way that um, Alfonso constructed those shots, they were slow moving. And as the camera would move in, they would dismantle the set around it so it could track into it and you'd get these long shots. But the stereo rigs were really quite, quite big and quite cumbersome. And it was, it was actually getting in the way of what Alfonso was trying to achieve uh, creatively with the, you know, in the, with the, with the, in, with the cinematography. So that's when the producer, as we were just starting off our stereo conversion process, came to me and said, um, got this movie, uh, there's probably about 20 minutes worth of interiors, you know, could we do a test with the stereo conversion? Of course, we jumped at it, we, we did the test, we showed it to Alfonso, he was really happy with that, yep, we don't need stereo cameras anymore, we'll shoot it all in mono, I can achieve the, the camera moves and the, the field that I want, but then I know when we go through the post process and we stereo convert it, I'm also going to be able to achieve the 3D that I want. And 
because it was, I mean, that film was four or five years in the making. I think we started that probably in about 2000 and 2010 or 11. And through the process of the making of Gravity, we must have delivered a dozen other stereo converted films and features in that time. And then Gravity was finally finished and came out and, and you know, deserved all of the, the plaudits that it, that it received, both for its artistic vision for its you know for its you know for its performance for its narrative but also for its outstanding visual effects there is a shot in gravity where without giving anything too much away sandra bullock comes back into the capsule after that initial run in space Mm. and she's sort of floating around in fetal position um in a moment of sort of solace after just the craziness that just happened. Yeah. And I just yeah. thought that was just such a beautiful, breathtaking shot that really was, uh, just really enhanced it, the story. I think I, I love that shot. It, it, it really is a, a beautiful shot. And I think in the wrong hands, that could feel a little too obvious because it is the fetal, you know, it is that. But it's done so delicately and so beautifully that actually it, 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 you, you, you can't help but be carried along with the emotion of that as well. I mean, all there's so much of that film that's one of those few films that's it's perfect from start to finish. You know, you, you come out, you can't fault it. I, I feel like there's certain movies, almost like, you know, when I was younger, I would hear certain songs that would almost give me the chills because the song was so good. Yeah. There's certain shots in certain movies that I feel like that, and that was that was one of them in that movie. I'll tell, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one shot on that film, which for us it was it was one of the most challenging visual effect shots in the whole film, but I don't even think made it into the end. And I'll tell you why. In stereo conversion, you, you, because you're separating a character from a background and you're bringing them forward, you've, there's nothing behind them because there's nothing filmed there. You're literally cutting them out and moving them forward. So we would have paint artists painting in, painstakingly painting in, backgrounds digitally. So using elements from shot before, shot afterwards, and digitally recreating what wasn't there. And that's quite a quite a really sophisticated process to do that. Now, I don't know if you remember at the very end of the film when, when Sandra, she she stands up having sort of come out of the water as she takes her first steps on land. When they shot that, she she splashed on the water and there was a huge splash on the camera lens, but they carried on filming. And obviously, when we came back to the cut, and that was in the film as well, much of, of, of Sandra's sort of body is obscured by this huge water drop, which covered most of the screen as well. And they wanted to keep it in the film. And there wasn't another take. I would have been, they would have saved so much money and time if someone had just cleaned the lens and they did the shot again, but they didn't. It's what we had. And it took us months and months and months of, of cleaning up, remove, essentially removing that water droplet and rebuilding Sandra on the back of that as well. But obviously with all the breath, the movement, the feeling of water as well. And then, and then um, Alfonso wanted some water droplets put back in. So we put those water droplets back in. And I, I, I fear for the, I pity the poor artist who had to do that because I think in the final cut of the film, you see her stand up and then he fades to black as well. So, but, the, you know, there's so many, with any film, there's, there's hours and hours and hours of shots on the cutting room floor, whether visual effects or non-visual, they never, they never make the cut as well. And it's just part of something that is just part of the process because the, the director cuts what's right for the film. Yeah. 
I guess you can't get too emotionally attached to certain things, even though it's hard. Work. It's hard for the artists sometimes when they're yeah, waiting to see the final film and they've got their one shot and it didn't make it, you know. But hey ho, yeah. next film. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I mean, you also worked on Edge of Tomorrow, which was also remarkable. that was great fun. That was that was I think in some ways that was one of my favorite stereo films to work on because by that by that point the process was really advanced and and we and stereo conversion was all about just cutting out and rotor but this is the first film we actually started to use we would take the visual effects elements and incorporate those into the 3d so you've got really really great 3d there's there's all sorts of scenes in there with the holograms and the hologram table so you've got really high we were able to do things in the step with the stereo that you couldn't do before so it was a really fun I mean, I love the film. I think it's, I love, you know, that sort of, you know, the, the, the setup of that movie, the overall gag that every day he wakes up and it's the, the same story again, but like, you've got to just get a bit further along the line. So it just, it's a great sort of popcorn movie anyway, but we really got to have fun with the 3D and really produced exciting 3D that, that really added to the fun of the film as well. I think that's one of the, one of, for the, a lot of films, you can't really say, well, they're better in 3D for me. When I watch it, that's 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 films much just adds another level to it in 3D as well, which I really enjoyed. And I think the team behind it as well, the visual effects team behind it, the director, embraced that as well and sort of went along for the ride to make that really stand out, you know, kind of popcorn movie. It was great. I'm I'm sure that I mean each each film is unique in terms of its challenges, but some some films it seems like it would be more difficult. The the stereography. The, the whole stereoscopic process seems like it would be more challenging than other films. It, seem, it seems like. Yeah, it, it, it can. I mean, there was th- there's things within within stereo which are particularly when it's a when it's a visual effects movie where most of the shots in it are visual effects. It's a lot easier because those visual effects are being created digitally and separately anyway. So you can take those and incorporate them into the background in 3D. It's those films where. Um, the scenes where they're not shot, there's no visual effects, and it's just natural. It's the real world, whether it's it could be in a forest, um, in water. You you digitally have to cut out every single element within that as well to generate the depth. But that's really hard, and it's really labour intensive as well. So those films can be quite a challenge. So wild hair, uh, grasses, where there's mist as well, and you try, kind of create create true depth through mist. Those were, you'd review a film before you start the process as well, and you pick out the, the challenging scenes. And it was always the, oh, God, filming in the forest, there's mist, there's moisture, it's all live action, and the lead actor's got loads of hair. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nightmare. Yeah. And in 2016, you moved over to one of us as a consulting VFX producer. Could you walk us? I, I, actually, I actually went into to one of us as their, their head of production, and, and it was an incredible time and a, and a fantastic company to be a part of so i think by this stage te- stereo conversion had really become a process a digital process or so almost like digital manufacturing and through my career through through di which was you know really at the start and then it grew and then it became a process again and then stereo conversion cutting it i've always been attracted to things which are you know kind of new and interesting and challenging for me as well and i'd my experience of working at to smaller companies becoming larger companies and through and just uh, what you experience along the way on a lot of these sort of bigger films and big budget films the people you meet 
I think I was looking for something, um, just uh, just a new challenge, something a bit different. But one of us are a really incredible um, cerebral. Um, best way to describe it, just able to unlock uh, sort of visual puzzles in films that other companies, which are which a lot of may struggle to do. Um, they the challenges that would would come their way that filmmakers, regular collaborators would come to them with, were often those things in movies which, you know, just how you know it's really hard when you're with, with a director and you've got to un, sometimes pull out of their head what it is that they want and quite often a director might might be able to tell you well this is visually digitally in, in the world of things this is what I want and sometimes what they're what they're saying doesn't necessarily match what they're really actually thinking and and one of us and the, t the creative team there we're just you know masters have been able to get inside the director's head and un unraveling those puzzles and presenting back visually what it is they actually want as well and they built their reputation and that was really exciting and challenging and interesting to to be a part of that because at the sort of the you know the, the larger comes on the stereo process as i say it, it started to feel like it was just digital manufacturing you know you were just you just had to produce you know high numbers high volume all of the time as well so it was really great to get back to you know close close quarters with the with the creative talent as well and and working with the team there to you know to to take on more sophisticated projects, do more as well. So one of us was a real, it was an eye-opener, but it was you know, a really exciting time as well. And we, again, we have been lucky enough through working with the team there, some really great projects and also, you know, win some awards as well, which is people say, you know, oh, it's not about the awards. It's quite nice. It, you know? it helps. <laughs> yeah, it's quite, it does help. It's quite nice. And you worked on Star Wars, The Last Jedi while you were there. Well, that, again, going back to the, well, you know, that being able to unravel quite um, complicated uh, visual effects puzzles as well. The se the main sequence that we did for that film was the mirror cave sequence. I don't know if you remember where our heroine, she's sort of in search of herself. She comes out of the water and she sees a reflection and then it goes into a process of sort of replication of herself. And look, it is a quite an emotional or, you know, it's a very thoughtful moment within the film, but it was actually a really, really complicated and challenging shoot because i don't know if you remember as you see every uh, daisy's character sort of replicated behind her they weren't just a repeat of the one before everyone was shot differently as well the movements were triggered from the initial movement as well it was uh, we shot as much as we can working closely with the director so that was a real puzzle and we spent a long time just working on that one scene as well to get it right and i think it's one of the outside of the sort of the big the biggest scenes in those films. It's a really, you know, it's one of the best scenes in the film and it's one of the most sort of, you know, it's a really thoughtful moment as well, but it was a real complicated visual effects challenge from a on-set um, capture point of view, but also back into our visual effects world as well. Oh, without a doubt. It was definitely one of the highlights of the film for me. Yeah. You also worked on The Crowns season one and two, which is also very different. Totally, totally different. Again, you know, and I think it's worth... Quite often with visual effects, we can, um, the most, we see visual effects where they're obvious. It's a dragon, it's an explosion, it's a flying, you know, you know, it's obvious what is it, what is real and what isn't real. But the crown is one of those beautiful, 
projects as well. And actually, like many, many um, movies as well, where the visual effects are just invisible. You don't want to see them. You don't want to know them. They're not even there as well. And, you know, sometimes you know, I've worked with filmmakers who've said, no, there's no visual effects in my movie. It's all, I captured everything. And I'm like, really? I remember doing all of that work, but you don't want to break magic of it. But yeah, that, I mean, so, and the work, you know, in something like The Crown, sort of particularly in season one, you know, it, it's that the, you create, you particularly when you're working on an archival movie, you've got to recreate the, the period at the time as well, but in a way where no, you, you want people to think, oh, okay, they shot it there. So you get a lot of, you remove a lot of um, street furniture, building furniture, modern signs, but you also augment what what you captured, what is already there. So it's set extensions, skylines, um, the palace itself. We on the on the back lot of the studio. The only there's the the, the crown. Is, there's many scenes where you see the car, or through the through the whole series as well. It's a different car, obviously, because it you know goes through time. Drives through the gates of the palace, and the palace sort of emerges in front of you. All that we had built on set was just the the doorway. So we obviously. You know, we had green screens behind it and then we build up the palace behind that as well. And, and that's something that, you know, people, you, you want your audience to go, wow, they, how did they, and people ask us, how did you get access to the palace? You know, we didn't, we filmed it on the back lot at Shepparton and just augmented it in visual effects. But, you know, maybe we don't tell them that, but the VFX supervisor, Ben Turner, um, did, a, did a really incredible job and, you know, the production team as well. And my role, really on those was to sort of guide and guide and manage and you know help it through the, the system internally as well and you know, there's so much another part of the, the process as well is the business side of things we have this creative thing but we're always still dealing with budgets with deadlines with all of these things as well and as consulting vfx producer on that so that's really where much of my work was involved as well, is working with the production team to make sure that we were delivering, you know, all of this amazing work, but it, it's got to fit within a budget. It's got to fit within a time scale as well. And it's got to be, you know, good for the business. And that's something that I'd probably spend more and more time doing. But, uh, and then in season two of The Crown, it became because, well, I guess because of the success of season one, more ambitious, but it was, you know, they were incorporating, you know, as well as sort of their, environment design and the augmentation of that we had you know the 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 the, the, the luxury boat the i think was it the, what's the boat called is it the qe i can't remember that was all fully cg as well you've got we we had tanks bombs explosions it, again it became really more ambitious as well but again most of that you know was not captured with the camera as well it was augmented after but i think on a, on a series like the crowd and others like it as well you assume you don't want to bump your audience out of it at all in any way by oh that's that visual effects aren't great or oh, that's a bit you know because it just takes you out of the story and you want to keep everybody in the story so those shots really need to be completely invisible 